Everybody, this is Money Can't Buy You Class. I'm Gemma. I'm joined by Phoebe, and we are today joined by friend of the pod, Becca Teich, to talk about Gail Rubin, some queer theory, Vanderpump rules. Oh yeah. We'll we'll get it all in. I'm very I'm, yes. I'm very energized by this. Yeah, I just wanted I just want to touch on that uh, note of ener- energizing right now. Um, I just want everyone to know how devoted I am, and this is Phoebe speaking. I want everyone to know how devoted I am to the podcast. I was in downtown Chicago, one of my main haunts, hanging out <laughs> with a man who I will get into later. I have much to say about this encounter I just had. I took the bus home. I got off a couple stops early. So I legitimately ran a mile barefoot through Hyde Park, Chicago. So I just want people to know I am devoted. I'm devoted to sharing knowledge, wisdom, gossip, you name it. Yeah. All for all to talk about Vanderbump rules. Yeah. (laughs) Which comes out the new season. Did you see the trailer back on the new season? Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we were all a little worried. Yes. The firings. Not, not because the firings were wrong. Um, they fired people for very legitimate reasons, but the whole like organic friend cluster, like you can't, you can't make that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really can't. I love the fact that now we're getting into like drama involving the fact that they have babies. I I can't. I mean, that the, they, they did a classic edit, which was, you know, showing... Sheena be like, I've changed now that I'm a mother. And then she's like sitting there sobbing, being like, she just won't be nice to me. I just want to go see my baby. (laughs) I think the baby is just going to become like another insufferable excuse for all of them being like, listen, I have a baby. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's going to be like, like how Jax is always like, look, I'm a work in progress. We've all done fucked up things like this is (laughs) the brain now that that is out of the picture. Yeah certainly um also just like the post the classic post covid like everyone's fucked up and everyone is dancing and making out including like lisa vanderpump like the first scene is lisa vanderpump just like grinding with tom sandoval because everyone's just like it's post covid i'm getting fucked up i'm like having sex even if it's just emotional tom has that uh facial hair situation going on that's a new, that's adults, Tom Sandoval. Everyone <laughs> <laughs> else had babies and he got facial hair. Yeah, exactly. Um, Tom Schwartz, hate to say this, looking a little puffy. Oh my you gosh, know? you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> you didn't. I think Schwartz is like the idealization of like a passive man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they do have a very lesbianic relationship where, yeah. you know, they're like not having sex, but they're incredibly intimate. Although like I dispel the myth of like lesbian bed death, like that is stupid. That's a lie. Like, <laughs> no, um, 
like look at look at the straight couples in Vanderpump Rules again Mm -hmm. none of them are fucking like does that happen with dykes no uh not in the same way or we talk about it we open up our relationships and fuck other people like it's fine um as a proud relationship anarchist but I also (laughs) think that like the Toms have the like ideal like dyke exes dynamic where they're like still in love with each other like they process their emotions with each other more than they do with their partners like yeah yeah we we talked about that last time i think a little bit that kind of like like um homosocial kind of bonds that kind of dictate the show rather than the whereas there's it you know it's supposed to be all about these kind of couples but it's it's really just about a friend group and their betrayals of one another. Yeah. And I think that that kind of gets into like looking at it, maybe from another vantage point gets into the Gail Rubin. Yes. Uh, gets into Gail. Right? Yeah. So if I could just give a, a, a short uh, diatribe of my feelings. Dicotribe. Uh, dicotribe about my feelings quite literally. So a lot of this emerged from uh, me griping endlessly about the fact that Catherine McKinnon, who had a fucking article in the New York Times today, so this is really timely, Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin uh, were a part of the feminist sex wars, um, and they landed firmly on the side of penetrative sex is wrong, sex work is wrong, porn is wrong, BDSM is wrong, and butch femme relationships are wrong. Uh and Catherine McKinnon came out today, you know, against OnlyFans, you know, that we shouldn't have porn on the internet. This is really, you know, disenfranchising people. And I see all the time, all these people who are otherwise, you know, avowedly, you know, quote unquote, sex positive, whatever the fuck that means, quoting Andrea Dworkin, quoting Catherine McKinnon. Um, we see republications of their work happening all the time, uh, very unexpected people endorsing them. And yet, we have Gail Rubin on the other side of the sex wars who um, identifies as like a leather dyke or like is a leather dyke, um, very like pro SM, pro porn, um, pro butch femme relationships, pro uh, sexualized power dynamics, um, and really prescient about a lot of the things that we're seeing today in terms of sexual repression and the, the uh, brutal discrimination and uh, of sex workers um, and all of that stuff, like all these like sex panics happening, like no one talks about her, uh, but everyone's talking about these other people. So uh, I just thought it would be interesting to run that through Vanderpump Rules, especially because last time we talked about, okay, they're all so close to being gay. You know, they're all so close to being uh, non-monogamous. They're all so close to like kink or like all or, or or even sex work too um and yet they don't cross that threshold and so i think that it's almost like gail rubin in some ways gives us a helpful frame for thinking about that as well as uh, a way to think about why why andrea dworkin and katherine mckinnon are having this moment even though hate i hate them um and what that says about how people grapple with their bad desires or having desires for bad objects. So that's my. Yeah. I mean, something, so this was the first time I had ever read Gail Rubin. I, I didn't even know who uh, she was before Becca introduced us to her. Um, you know, and something that really struck me was Gail Rubin's insistence 
on like the necessity of empirical sociology when talking about um what does she call she doesn't call them like minority sexual communities but she calls them deviant sexual communities right and I I just like I know that Gail Rubin I mean this okay Gail Rubin is talking about like leather leather communities within like lesbian and like gay male communities um but I really think that her frame of reference takes seriously the pure empirical social sociological anthropological study which is the filmic resonance of Vanderpump rules Mm-hmm. You know, and I thought that that um, it was it, it's just like a really good framework in order to see them, which is as a deviant sexiology at a deviant sexual grouping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that also brings up the question of what people do, what people say they do and what people believe or want to believe. I mean, also one of the things just like shout out to to this facet of it is that. Gail Rubin is interested in, like you said, the empirical quality of things. Like what actually is happening? What actually are people doing, you know? Um, And so two kind of funny ways that this pans out is, uh, you know, she is interested in dykes who fuck fags and vice versa in the whole, you know, uh, in the catacombs where, or things like that, where we have like dykes fisting fags. And then on the converse side, we have Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin saying, you know, penetrative sex is bad. You know, this is bad. We should all be like lesbian separatists. Um, Meanwhile, Dworkin's married to a man, um, uh, like a cis hetero man. Um, But Vanderpump Rules kind of gets into the like deviant sexuality of how it's actually complicated. Like, it's really complicated. Like, how do we categorize these people? You know, they say they're doing one thing and then what they actually Mm -hmm. do do provides us this totally different like gradations of deviation from whatever it is that they say they do want or they aspire towards, which is like marriage or coupledom marriage kids house. And they're, they're also such a, um, like anthropologically, like they're also such a community, like there's right. such a, there's such like a closed group that it, it is a very, and even, even beyond, I feel like the fact that they are all cast members on the same show, I do feel like they have this real community feel where they have history together. They have contemplated futures together they really like exist in the moment together and everything that the deviance that we're obviously talking about is what we see on the show and I feel like what's kind of interesting like is to think about like all the like the cheating or the kind of like adultery and like is that deviant that was what struck me when I was reading it was this idea that like there's these there are these kinds of yeah like transgressions going on within this community of the cast yeah, I mean, I think that maybe an obvious, you know, an easy, almost obvious, but also kind of interesting place to start would be situating the like the normative structures in which Vanderpump Rules purports itself to occupy. You know, Mm -hmm. so what I'm thinking of is even a continuation of what we talked about last time. I'm thinking of the situation of themselves as a family. Like mm-hmm. the, the purported kinship structure of the family within the restaurant. But then, you know, then you have the the family structures of, of their desire to create heterosexual normative family structure within their relationships. And that being like the be all end all goal, 
you know, so maybe, maybe we could even start there with questioning it, you know, through Gail Rubin, questioning the kinship structure of the created family through the creation of the Vanderpump Rules family, even with Lisa Vanderpump as like Mary, you know, mo- Mother Mary, the Virgin Mother, even with she, you know, she, Lisa Vanderpump is, I don't even fuck Todd. Uh, Todd? What's his name? Ken. Ken Todd. Ken. Oh my God. Ken Todd. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's just like the two like whitest <laughs> Britishest names ever. Ken Todd. Anyway, so she's like the Mother Mary and they're all just like wannabe Jesuses. <laughs> Go from there. Say so, more. I mean, so what I think is really interesting about that is so like Gail Rubin, I think what she approaches these things with this almost radical ambivalence of, you know, what happens when we don't prescribe things, you know, what happens when we don't immediately try and map a power dynamic uh, or, or say that something is coextensive with a broader power dynamic. So in what way, I mean, one of my favorite, a little bit, you know, tap on, tap on my shoulder here, saving my ass, uh, <laughs> when she talks about how actually like in SM, job sub dynamics don't easily map on to that broader power dynamic of the dom is the person in full power under the guise of the state and the sub has no power. Because actually if um, like the police break into a BDSM dungeon, they see what's going on. Uh, the the doms are arrested. So they're actually the ones in the more precarious situation. Mm -hmm. But I think here there actually is this like interesting moment where what happens when the alternative kinship structure actually just amplifies uh, pre-existing dynamics of like capitalist forms of kinship or even reverts back. Like it feels very feudal. Like they're all living on her feudal estate and have to Uh, look at her as this like feudal lord they have to ask for her permission for these things even you know which is this uh like we talked about last time the status of the boss is elevated then as well to the status of the mother figure uh and it's like not it's like not really a hot incest narrative you know it's it's actually really um uh along lines of like proletarian and bourgeoisie even as the stars move into the like bourgeois class yeah that's very true I mean okay so here's here's something else that I that I want to throw it throw out about Gail Rubin um so in in thinking sex which she wrote in the 70s you know something that yeah something that she got a lot of flack for something that she then addressed in rethinking sex and with her really kind of incredible interview with Judith Butler was her supposedly uh, uh, p- like her position, which supposedly advocated for the normalization of pedophilia and incest. So when I first read that in Thinking Sex, I was a little taken aback. You know, I'm just going to be honest about it. You know what I mean? I was like, wow, that's kind of fucked up. Why is she saying that like, as she calls them, intergenerational, intergenerational relationships should be normalized? I disagree. I don't think that that's true. Um, you know, as you keep reading her opus and you read Rethinking Sex and you read the interview with Judith Butler, you realize, or she says, she says that wasn't supposed to be the main point. I was just saying there's certain types of legalese which prohibit, say, a relationship between like a 25 year old and, and an 18 year old, which perhaps is 
like there's consent there, whatever, it's fine. She was like, I'm not saying a 40 year old should fuck a five year old. You know what I mean? And, and I think that that's like the real, um, social athlete, like when people hear pedophilia or people hear incest, that's what they think of. They don't think of the 25 year old and the 18 year old, which is a relationship, which, you know, whatever, that's fine. You, you do whatever you want to do, but, you know, but then thinking about Vanderpump rules, I'm really struck by the, as you were just saying, Becca, um, the allusion to incest, you know, cause when you create a kinship structure, when you create mm, a structure, mm-hmm. which is a family, when the boss is the mom, what happens when that power dynamic is I want to fuck the boss, which is I want to fuck my mom, you know? And I think that that's actually where Gail Rubin's normalization of, you know, I don't want to say pedophilia, her normalization of intergenerational relationships or her normalization of the desire for incest actually becomes more of a Marxist critique of sexual desire. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and I, that's not a question. That's just kind of like an observation. And I'm wondering maybe what both of you think about incest or think about inter- intergenerational relationships in terms of, you know, if you're looking at VPR as a sociological study, like, does that do anything for you guys? Where does that get you? Well, I mean, I think in terms of the incest thing, like there's obviously always this kind of like both the Toms talk about Tom Schwartz in particular talks about his like sexual attraction to Lisa. And it's kind of the one person that everyone, the boyfriends can talk about to their girlfriends that the girlfriends like don't say anything. And they're kind of like, Oh yeah, me too, honestly, or they want to be her. But I think also the idea of the incest thing, like, I mean, this might be, I don't know, this might not totally map on, but you know, even like the best friend thing, the, like the really close knit, best friend thing where like the betrayal is the deviation like the the choice to the choice to have sex with somebody who is close to you and is close to someone who you ostensibly you know care for and knowing that you're going to damage that relationship the intense closeness and intimacy and then the crossing of those boundaries is to me feels like some like I don't know like there could be something in there yeah absolutely and I think that again it like really does map onto and I I think in large part what Gail Rubin is getting at is not necessarily saying like I am advocating for every deviant sexuality that I'm posing as in the outer limits as you know she has that incredible diagram of the charmed circle um which is like vanilla monogamous cishet um non-sex worker uh all of non-pornographic all like no outside objects used in the bedroom and the outer limits um it's it's not saying we all need to go to the outer limits though you know, she absolutely occupies many of those quadrants, uh, but it's rather saying which are criminalized and which aren't. So right. really being, if we really put put our full thrust behind, you know, um, fuck the state, fuck the legal, legal apparatus, fuck the police, uh, then we want to look at what populations are being targeted by the police and how do we stop that? You know, and that is a different issue from how do we, you know, as a community, uh, heal and avoid harm and avoid violence. And so she's noting the way that particularly like gay populations are being charged with um, pedophilia charges uh, disproportionately so, and are kind of having that already mapped on them. Um, and so here it's almost like the inverse. 
uh, in some ways where there is the absolute like power dynamic transgression of like, don't fuck your boss. You know, she is a multimillionaire. <laughs> you are living off your tips, like huge power dynamic going on there. And she dangles opportunities in front of them that she's like, I can take it away as soon as I give it. Mm-hmm. Um, So the power dynamic there is actually very real and already probably pretty violent, um, but it's eroticized and basically totally safe from the state. In fact, if not like state sanctioned by virtue of it, like being on Bravo for all these years and clearly being a thing they can uh, publicly share without anyone getting any harm, you know, anyone getting any flack for it. It's like a cute joke, Um, but it's also like a cute desire that people see in that situation. So as uh, as you guys may know, Gemma and I went to Sir, right? <laughs> when I was in LA, we went to Sir. Um, and Gemma, when we were there, it was actually like gay pride month in West Hollywood or, or whatever. It was, it's June. And it was also yeah. my birthday. My birthday's on pride. I say oh. as a as a proud straight woman. <laughs> An ally. That's real allyship. It really is. Yeah. Be born. I was born um, on the day of pride. So Gemma, Gemma wins the allyship award. Very good job. <laughs> Very good job, Gemma. Um, but no, the most amazing thing about that was that there were like the lesbian sheriffs everywhere, you know, and they, you know, they weren't arresting anyone. You know what I mean? But I think I'm just trying to like make an observation that it's like, yeah, like we had the lesbian police officers who were like sternly talking to the people who are like puking on the sidewalk being like what drugs did you take but then you go to sir which in and of itself is a supremely homoerotic environment and there are no police you know what I mean it's very calm yada yada there's nothing there so I you know I definitely think that you know you can and I don't know if get what Gail Rubin would say about this or if she even cares about reality television. I mean, I think that the big joke of all of this is that you use these like super radical, super political theorists in relation to like the bullshit pop culture, which is reality TV. But I, I just think that it's like, it's like, this is the example. This is it. We went there. There's no police presence. It's all gay they're all gay. They all want to fuck each other. If they're not already fucking each other, they're disrupting every single heterosexual norm while purporting to align themselves with these heterosexual norms. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I just like, what do you do with that obviousness? Like my question is one of reading this show through Gail Rubin. How do you, how do you digest that obviousness? Well, I think it kind of shows the shift, both the shifting and non-shifting of the charmed circle. So, I mean, firstly, going back to what you said about uh, uh, her use of like particular subcultures and communities, uh, a big refrain on the show is, well, it's LA or well, it's West Hollywood. So that kind of uh, is this line that throws away any, that, that is the explanation for everything. It is, explains all the behavior away. Um, when Brittany first comes here from Kentucky, uh, Jack says, well, this is West Hollywood, get used to it. Um, and so there are ways that, and you know, all the girls are like, yeah, I've made out with someone else. And Jack says this other entanglement and um, you know, a lot of their work uh, is very erotic. Um, you know, they are, it is objectively a show that in many ways people are interested in because they're looking at hot people fuck each other. Um, (laughs) However, 
you know, so so the charm circle, you know, like would this have been, you know, when Gail Rubin published this, would this have been uh, considered okay or normal? No, it wouldn't have been. So the charm circle is shifting for sure, but there's also a hard limit, right? So there's still this limitation of, okay, we can talk about this and approximate this, but we can't go over the lip of it. Um, you know, we can have all the girls make out, but once it's Kristen going down on Brittany, boom, hard limit. We're mm. not, we're not talking about that. We can have Ariana jokingly flog Tom, but once that desire becomes too serious, we can't have that. Um, we can have a threesome happen, but we can't have that be, be spoken about as, as a valid relationship. It has to be um, explained away. So some of the fuzziness of the charm circle exists, which is, is fuzzed over by virtue of like, it's West Hollywood, this is what happens. But still, the land must be on, you know, some in some way approximating uh, heteronormativity in some way aspiring towards um, monogamy, nuclear family, property ownership. Yeah, 100%. And I kind of like love that distinction. And something that I kept thinking about reading Gail Rubin is, is the uh, deeply political, deeply politicized and policed line between uh, desire and lived experience, right? Mm -hmm. Um I think that that's, I mean, that's something that you see a lot of very radical feminists um, and, you know, queer people talking about is just like what, like what, like what is allowed to be desired? For example, a threesome, girls don't go and down on girls, like, you know, like, uh, like non-monogamy what's desired as opposed to like what is socially allowed you know because it's like oh it's so hot in Vanderpump Rules for the girls to make out with each other but what if those girls actually wanted to have like an open relationship where it's like they respect each other and they can hold hands and like they can have their own drama that's not cool you know what I mean and I think that you even see that with uh, a character like oh my god I'm forgetting her name again the 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 one trans woman on the show Billy Lee Billy Lee Right. Mm -hmm. You, I mean, and I think Becca, you and I were texting or maybe you and me and Gemma were texting about this where it's like Billy Lee is, is, is trans. Right. So they all come into it. Like all the other characters on the show, because she's trans, they put her in like this uh, box of associated desire and associated political comportment and then when she goes against such desire and when she goes against such political comportment, she's off the show, mm -hmm. you know, or when like someone like Jeremy is like, yeah, like, I just want to go on like a date with her. It becomes like Jeremy's creepy. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. He's so creepy. Or it's like, oh, Billy Lee, like, explain this. You know what I mean? It's just like she's only allowed to be trans. Like, it's like only the only like the straight desire associated with a trans woman is allowed in the bubble of the trans woman character. And I think that that relates a lot to kind of like the overall vibe of sexual politics and ethnographies of Vanderpump. I always felt like I really like saw Lala in like a real part of that kind of storyline you know just but Lala was like a real like ally to Billy but then also like then like lost it on her at one point 
Well, there is this whole thing where they all want, they all want to say that they're really good allies. You know, Lisa's always talking about how good she is for the LGBTQ community. You know, she loves the acronym. Uh, And Lala is like, yeah, I totally support her experience and her story. And the instant it's, it's, you know, the, the constant refrain of the instant Billy's like, hey, this was kind of fucked up. Like this was actually like transphobic when, uh, when all the girls had the, all the, all the um, cis girls who were friends with Katie wanted to have the like girls only party to eradicate James um, and didn't invite her. And Billy was like, Hey, that's like kind of fucked up that you didn't like invite so me. And yeah, it was so fucked up. And then Lala's like, what the fuck is cis normativity? Um, and all of that. And right. it's just like, I will be a good ally wherein the worst thing that you can do is accuse me of not being a good ally. Um, And, you know, it is absolutely like within, I think like you're totally spot on in pointing out that like it actually crosses over pretty perfectly with Lala's like ascent into the charm circle um, and normativity where she goes from being like, um, in this relationship where she's a sugar baby, it's like vaguely sex work adjacent. It's vaguely uh, like non-monogamous because this guy had another partner at the time, uh, allegedly. Um, and she's talking about sex all the time. And there she's, you know, like, does daddy want a finger in his asshole type thing uh, that she <laughs> talks about pretty openly um, in like the hotel. But then now she's like, no, but like my man is important. I'm going to like movie premieres with him as his fiance. Um, and we're, we're going to have a family together. And so like, it's almost like she wants to be a good ally, but there's still that hard limit of like, I will not let other things in that could tarnish my ascent into the charm circle while still capitalizing on on the like fragments of her bad girl persona from earlier on something incredible though about lala is that she's such a sexual person and she's proud of it but it's very telling that the moment the moment she enters a normative heterosexual monogamous relationship she loses her sex drive Mm-hmm. And she admits that in the most recent reunion, you know, it doesn't get her off, you know, mm-hmm. and that is telling she no longer desires. Um, what's his name? What's her boyfriend? Randall. Name? Randall. She who, no longer- who, do you know, he's based, you know, turtle from entourage is based on him. <laughs> anyway. Um, but anyway, not to take away from the Lala experience, but, um, Lala is very obviously turned on by like the sugar baby sugar daddy dynamic Mm -hmm. which is also a dynamic which is heavily policed Mm -hmm. well exactly like I think and this this also has to do with kind of the coalition work coalition building that Gail Rubin's interested in is what if we don't look at these things in terms of taxonomies necessarily? What if we don't look at things exclusively in terms of what I prescribe as like gay and what I prescribe as straight or whatever it is, but instead we look at criminalized sexual populations, which is actually maybe a much better way of thinking about it because within the shifting of, of all of this, uh, all of the normativities, you know, what happens when actually maybe like um, a straight person's sexuality is 
criminalized in the same way as certain queer people's sexualities are. Um, and certain queer people's sexualities are not as criminalized. Uh, so, but I mean, of course, still we get a show that has had only one person who is not cishet uh, vocally and, you know, she's ousted after a minute. But yeah, I mean, it absolutely is about like these kind of criminalized, uh, like what if what if we view sexuality as on a spectrum of like who who's criminalized or not rather than like trying to prescribe these labels? Uh, because even if we think about, you know, the people who, the, the two bicons on the show, uh, Ariana Maddox and Dana Cathan, um, Ariana really only comes out after she's stably in a heterosexual relationship for umpteen right. years. Um, so it's this kind of like other accoutrement and then she can't add in the, the SM mm -hmm. when she tries to flog Tom and she <laughs> cannot be seen. Um, and she's right. like a fairly desexualized character um, on the show in general. And Dana you know, is like, I'm into everyone, except she only pursues guys on the show. And like, they use and the shittiest guys, the, the worst shittiest. fuck boys. Yeah, which also is is like, that's classic. Um, yeah, it's, it's classic. It's both like, oh, this is part of the culture of Sir. And also like, this is part of the culture of the show mm -hmm. where uh, sexual desire is predicated not on having like a sustainable life partner with whom you form a secure attachment <laughs> to and a healing relationship and you do co-regulate or you two or more co-regulate. Instead, it's, you know, how do I find someone who fits into this culture of um, uh, monogamy with cheating and right taming the fuck boy and you know all and and part of the family like those are the those are the conditions for being in relation in intimate relation to another not uh other things that we might think might be helpful mm -hmm. oh i have so much to say about that gem do you want to did you want to say something i just that? wanted to just quickly say that we can maybe talk about this later but like this idea of like um like the criminal in this in like the sex criminal is like definitely jacks <laughs> like mm -hmm. he is the one who's like the most um he's kind of the most police like everyone cares the most about what he does um and obviously that's like you know it's like a very that's a very funny and like weird thing because he's obviously like a straight white dude who um seems pretty like conservative so in real world he's not the one being policed at all and in fact the way that he's has so many transgressions is a little bit like he doesn't he doesn't feel a presence of like anybody watching him or he doesn't feel like there's any consequences he's like super entitled in that very classic way but um yeah I just feel like that you know there is like this might this might be a little bit of a tangent but you know this kind of like among in the in the kinship structure like there is like this policing that is done and there's like people who are chosen as like the criminal that's actually so perfect he I mean he quite literally is the criminal queer I mean he he's criminal <laughs> relationship with a guy like he is like mm -hmm. you want to talk about like the gay do crime like he has done both of those things yeah. <laughs> I think that this actually goes to um I don't know if you two have read but there was this phenomenal work that that just came out um by uh, Christopher Chitty called Sexual Hegemony. And the big goal of that book, or one of the many beautiful goals of that book, is what if we think the history of sexuality through the history of property? 
Mm. So what if we uh, think about, again, deviant sexual populations, not cordoned off by like uh, the specter of self-identification, but rather how, how uh, is sexuality mediated by the flow of capital and its relationship to property ownership. So in this way, this book kind of says, well, we're not really interested in like the super rich Renaissance uh, 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 um, elite who are all fucking each other and who are men. We're interested in the guys who are criminalized for sodomy. We're interested in the uh, single men of the proletarian class who were suddenly moving around to all these seaports and you get all these gay pirates going on because uh, the conditions of capital meant that now um, you had to move around to urban centers and to uh, uh, assist in the transport of capital. Um, so Jax is kind of the perfect example yeah, of that. And then it's like literally when he buys a house, he becomes this like moral, like moral church going monogamous. Yes. This is my wife, you know, kind of situation. <laughs> and so it literally is like that his was Borat, by the way. <laughs> you have city kid trying a country accent. But like his sexuality is maybe most mediated, not even by marriage, but by property. Oh, like that's where yes. the kid happens. Also, he arguably, you know, has, you know, we know that he was in a relationship with an older man when he moved to Miami and the way that generational intergenerational and the way, the way that, like exchange of money. I just Camille Donatachi, two words, Camille Donatachi. May, may I go off Gemma? May I? Yeah, of course. So a couple of weeks ago, I went to a party um, and I met this man, I met this older man. And uh, we spent a couple hours together and this older man told me, he said, Phoebe, you're into the real housewives. Well, guess what? I'm obsessed with the housewives as well. And I actually have one of the original copies of the Camille Donatachi All-Stars Playboy. Wow. Camille so Donatachi, for those listening, is Camille Grammer, who was at one time the most hated housewife in history. She was married to Kelsey Grammer, and he very unceremoniously divorced her. Yes. In a hotel room in New York. Right. So today, September 8th of uh, 2021, I met up with this man uh, at Russian Tea Time. It's like this random Russian place in Chicago. And he brought the Playboy to the restaurant and he hid it in like the Mila Kunis Ashton Kutcher Architectural Digest. So like all the servers oh could tell. That's hysterical. And we were reading Playboy. And I must say it's incredible. First of all, the pubic hair in 1997, like the mainstream pubic hair was off the chain. It's like a tarmac. It's just like one thin line. Yeah, the, the landing strip. I just need to make it clear. I need to make it public that like I saw Camille Grammer's like full on vagina. And it's actually incredible because this playboy that this man had. I also just want to note that this man is like a big art dealer in Chicago. He's like he like owns a gallery. He like lives in one of like the nicest buildings in downtown Chicago. He's like this like man he's a converted jew also mm. um we love it but he's like he just like bought this like first edition um 
Playboy addendum. So it's not an actual Playboy, but it was just like 1997 Playboy All-Stars. And it was incredible because, you know, in the late 1980s, Camille Donatacci, now Camille Grammer, was a dancer on Club MTV, which was like this huge MTV show with, with like all these like cool kids. You know what I mean? It was like the club kids, but like on TV and like not actually the club kids. You know what I mean? Um, so she like already had accrued reality fame by being on MTV. And then through that, she forced her way into uh, the, the Playboy Mansion, which at that time was in Chicago, which was in downtown Chicago. I learned that today. And she really? Just, like, the, whole, the real one? The original one was in downtown Chicago. Yeah. That's crazy. It's actually currently right now, like currently as we speak, it's on sale for $2.8 million. But Camille had the most incredible image in the entire Playboy addendum, All Stars 1997, where it is a picture of her in front of a Miata. It's a type of car, a Miata. And she's in a sundress and she in one hand, she's looking at a guidebook of New York like a New York maps book before they were Google maps maps. They were like a Google maps book. And the other hand is lifting up her dress. There's no reason why she's just <laughs> lifting up her dress and you can see her full vagina. I mean, she's migrating for geography. We're all right? hot for geography. I think that you guys pick up on what I'm saying. It was like really fascinating to like meet up with someone to look at the kind of the origins of like, of like the sexual, popularity of Camille Donatacci, now Camille Grammer, whilst having a conversation about the difference between like 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 a sexual desire and the reality, which is the long term, which is the public version mm -hmm. of intimacy. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this, like about the housewives in general, you know, because everyone in LA, especially like they rise to fame or whatever, but they get there, you know, a lot of them get there. Like Lisa Rinna was like a soapy kind of playboy kind of gal. Erica Jane was basically a high class escort, you know, like she was basically this, the, the bar, the club that she worked at where she wore, I, I listened to her memoir. <laughs> she wore a long emerald dress um, and where she met Tom, her now criminal husband um, <laughs> before her life of crime. Uh, they, you know, like they're, that story is very, very common in the Real Housewives. And there's something about like that, the tradition of that, that's like kind of amazing to watch keeping playing out. Even in like 2021, you still have those presences that are so there. And so Phoebe, I think, yeah, I think I get what you're, see what you're saying about like, you know, how Camille Grammer has, you know, now translated and now she's just on TV, you know, being a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> But like, you realize that it's just like, it's more of the same. And I think yeah, that's yeah. the incredible thing is that like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, it's almost as like, it purports itself as like a Christianing into reality TV fandom, mm. but it's actually not like the, it's, p these people want to be famous. And it's, it's like, you know, uh, Gemma and I talk a lot about the end of reality television and Becca, maybe as you know, like Real Housewives in New York city literally just ended. Like it's over. It's yeah, over. It it can't, it can't go on. No. And it wasn't even renewed. You know what I mean? Like, they're, yeah, they're taking a hiatus. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's they're gonna come back but it's not it's not gonna be the same it's not gonna be the same cast like it's literally over um so I think that it's like fascinating to talk about Vanderpump rules as like this experiment in seeing if like you can go even further into the history of the creation of the reality star. Yeah. And yeah. I think that it also like maps weirdly onto exactly the difference between desire and actuality where there's almost this like by virtue of their youth, by virtue of the fact that they are not already in the game, but like had a foot in the door. There's also, I think, a lot of conflicting desire for desire. You know, mm. so by what what I mean by that is the uh, the fact that I mean maybe the Real Housewives say this, but it's a lot more tongue in cheek because they have every like they have everything. It's like you know already there. Um, but there's this conflicting desire, right? There, where they're simultaneously saying, you know, I want a man, I want a career, I want a house, I want kids, you know, I want the the the, the pinnacle of you know capitalist aspiration toward property ownership, nuclear family couple form. Simultaneously, there is this desire to have good politics in a weird way, you know, which they fail at. I mean, they're all fucking idiots about this shit for the most part, except Ariana, love her, God bless. Yeah. Um, but all of them are like, well, we kind of know that we have to say that men suck. We kind of know that we have to say that like gay rights, you know, but like, especially I think the men suck thing gets on this really interesting domain of all of them are constantly like teetering towards a kind of like, um, I like men suck. What if we form a lesbian commune? But and we know that that's like some formulation of right desire, although also like obviously lesbian separatism was like a horrible, turfy, racist project. Um, but they're like, OK, we know that like patriarchy is bad and these men are treating us poorly. So we're going to say fuck men. But instead of like actually engaging with that in a substantial way, we're going to just like maybe make out with our girlfriend once and continue mm. to remain in these like unending relationships so there's like a lot of failed desire like they're neither except for Lala where that's complicated none of them are marrying the millionaire and none of so they're not doing the good the good aspirational normativity thing but they're also none of them are uh, disavowing it so they're kind of caught in this middle of like it's not even bad desire it's like mediocre desire you know what else no, no offense Gemma but like what else would you call like <laughs> wanting to stay with Tom Schwartz, you know? <laughs> no offense. No, I mean, I think that that is like the crux of Vanderpump Rules. And I think it also like, I do personally take a lot of like aggression against the whole like, oh, I wish I was into men, uh, or I wish I wasn't into men thing, um, which is, you know, the aspiration for a politically good desire to mm -hmm. actually inhabit a politically good desire. Um, because it is the sort of thing of like, well, you know, if all if Stasi's saying, well, I only get off to well, there is that incredible scene where they're all talking about how they only masturbate to lesbian porn, um, and all of them. Well, wait, when is that? I don't remember that. Oh, it's this one part in Vanderpump Rules where it's just all the girls at a dinner together, and Stasi's like, yeah, I can only get off to lesbian porn, and Brittany's <laughs> like, me too, and Kristen's like, me too, um, and no all of them way. Are talking. Yeah, 
oh my god yeah they're all but then they're still like but I'm strictly dickly um which I'm like I feel like you dreamed this I feel like this was like a dream I swear I swear it's real and it's ridiculous and then Stassi goes why don't we just form a lesbian commune right um well, she's very witchy. They do that whole like witch wine. So funny. like she very much aligns herself with that kind of like, you know, like kill all men. I love the graveyard. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, like the kill all men. I'm a mystic, whatever. Yeah. Also, like, even though she's not killing all men, she's allowing a lot of shitty men in her life. Uh, and like, you know, she herself is shitty. So I feel like that whole, you know, um, I am uh, saying fuck all men let me become a lesbian while continuing to only be with men and objectively being pretty shitty towards lesbians um and like anyone who isn't like cishet uh it's this way and i also think this relates to like the upsurge and the andrea dorkin Catherine mckinnon thing is it's a way of people who have a complicated relationship with cis men and to continue fucking them without feeling bad for their political desires, which is like, you know, fuck whoever you want to fuck, live, laugh, love. But it really is like, this is, yeah. I know that I should be maybe aspiring towards something a little bit more politically efficacious and how I fuck. And mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. So in me just saying, you know, fuck men, um, that's what happens, which is also like, if you notice who's uh, writing the articles about Andrea Dworkin, it's predominantly cishet women. Uh, with a few cis gay men who are only fucking cis gay men uh, going on there. So it's a way of people who are like fucking the quote unquote enemy, if we're being really boring about uh, how we understand gender, um, (laughs) being able to like absolve themselves of having a bad desire for men by Mm -hmm. saying fuck men, which again, like it's like the intermediary between like, I want the rich man and saying fuck men, they suck. Yeah. Well, something also fascinating about that, and I swear that this will connect, I promise you, but in uh, season, I guess, 19 or 20 of the Kardashians, you know, there was the first part in like uh, the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, when it was like pre-COVID, but then COVID hit, and then all of a sudden the show needed to pivot towards uh during COVID and also like quote unquote post COVID, which we're quote unquote in right now. Um, <laughs> but the, but the shots, you know, like the, like the drone shots of the, like with the Gavin Newsom, um, uh, you know, the, on the, on the radio or whatever on TV, it was like empty Los Angeles. And I think that is just like, that is this trope of the dystopian, future slash dystopian present is the city without anyone in it right Mm -hmm. and I think that that says a lot about like a disarticulation of 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 the gay migration as Gail Rubin says right Mm -hmm. the dystopia is if the cities, if the if the centers of this queer culture, of this que- of this closeted queer culture, which really is Vanderpump Rules, if you want to just say it in a couple of words, it's closeted <laughs> queer culture, right? Is the empty city, and to me, like, and that that is like the pinnacle of disaster of apocalypse. Is is truly fascinating to me it's a city it's the image of the city without anyone occupying 
its spaces without anyone making it what it is, right? It's the restaurant culture without the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the restaurant culture without the workers, mm-hmm. I think goes back to uh, Christopher Chitty and sexual hegemony, which is to say what happens when we return the history of sexuality to the history of property Uh, well, we're left with a lot of people who are displaced. Um, Mm -hmm. We are left with, uh, you know, a division between the property-owning class who are able to kind of keep their homes and the uh, non-property-owning class, the renter class, the people with precarious housing situations or illegal housing situations, which occupy, you know, the the zones of sexual deviancy. Uh, There is absolutely an overlap between these things. You know, of course, there's like, the wealthy, you know, uh, white cishet married couple who has the dungeon in their basement. But let's really think about the pervasiveness of people who occupy the outer limits. And those that, you know, really is going to be tied to, I think, um, property ownership and how you live and who you live with. You know, these things are absolutely tangled together. And what what I think Phoebe's also picking up on is the way that cities become investments rather than places to live, which, mm-hmm. you know, Vanderpump rules and the housewife franchises are absolutely contributing to the fact yes. that these are vacated tourist sites, not actual lives and, and cultures of their own. Well, I mean, like, does monogamy extend to patriotism? Yes. And I think that that even goes along with the political and the social infrastructure, the subconscious infrastructure of what Gail Rubin is problematizing, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's this, uh, it's not even monogamy or patriotism. It's the social application of allegiance, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, where like social geography is remapped through reality TV, you know, Um, these four, like this media form has reconstructed the map. Right. Uh, Or like not we necessarily, like I understand New York very differently than, you know, than, than if I had only seen it through Real Housewives of New York. But absolutely, if you're not someone from a metropole, uh, if you're not someone in in the metropolis center, um, your and you watch these shows, your understanding of city center is going to be uh, siphoned through these shows, which also I think um, comes into the 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 challenge of reinscribing uh, undergrounds as invisible or as truly underground because it it posits the city as these kind of inaccessible, elitist, uh, financial capitals, which indeed they are, but they're also survival mechanisms for people for whom, you know, uh, Utah would not necessarily be a viable choice, you know, or where small towns would not necessarily be um, as viable a choice uh, un- under certain conditions of being. Um, Becca, it's always a pleasure to have you on the pod. You got to come again. We love you. I love you guys. I love I love the conversations that happen here. This is literally the merging of like my two favorite things. I mean, <laughs> it's so fun.
I mean, yes, thank you for coming. Becca, do you have anything coming up? Do I have anything coming up? I'm laying low for a moment after the chaos of uh, Leo season. Um, <laughs> but I, I had recently an interview published in the Poetry Project newsletter. Um, that's about contact and contagion. And oh, love. it has a lot to do with my ideas about respectability, politics, and how we view intimacy and desire against the couple form. Like I talked about Great. today. Great. Well, we will link it. Yeah. Hell yeah. And you also have a new reading series. I do. A Desperate Living reading series. Love that. Beautiful. Hot. We love it. Yay. Well, thanks for coming on. And that was a lovely convo. Very, uh, very rich. I feel like I'm going to have, you know, I feel like it's always can continue. I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Okay. See ya. Peace out. you've learned money
the clouds. 